0: Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Miller, and today our guest will be Professor Robert Turner, who is the author of a fantastic book called Not for Long, The Life and Career of the NFL Athlete, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2018. Professor Turner is also an assistant professor in the Department of Clinical Research and Leadership at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Science, and holds a position as a research scientist in the Center for Behavioral Health Disparities Research at Duke University. After attending James Madison University on an athletic scholarship, Dr. Turner played football professionally in the National Football League, as well as in the USFL, or United States Football League, which is now defunct, and the Canadian Football League. Following that, he returned to school to earn his PhD and become a sports sociologist.
1: Professor Turner. Good
0: morning, or good
1: afternoon, well, it's morning for you. Good yes. morning.
0: Yes. All right. Good. Thank you so much for taking time to be with me today. I really appreciate it. No problem. I'm glad we can fit it in. I really am a, a great admirer of your work. I think it's rare to find someone like yourself who has the experience playing a sport at a high level and then also becomes a sports sociologist and has you know, the expertise to speak to matters far beyond their own personal experience. And I'm really just honored that you would join the, the show and answer a few of my questions. So thank you again.
1: Ah, it's you know, my pleasure. I, I really appreciate you finding that what I've done is important and given the platform to be able to share and anything that I can help share with you, your audience and others. then I, I just really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Of course. Thank you. Yes. There's no doubt to me that, that your work needs to be disseminated widely and so I want to, of course, get to that work. And I have dozens of questions, honestly, about it. But I want to start because I, I try to do this in all the episodes. But I want to start with your own uh, personal experiences early on playing sports. What was the first sport you played? What was it like?
1: Oh, well, my very first experience in organized sports at all was playing baseball. Mm-hmm. And it was really an important. It shaped a lot of experiences that I have. It's important for me how I came to understand many things that wound up shaping the research that I do. But uh-huh. when, when I grew up, I, I was originally from Newark, New Jersey, inner city, Newark, New Jersey, and my parents moved from Newark. At that time, it was lots of white flight going on in the inner city, urban decay, deindustrialization, jobs, education system going down. So my parents uh-huh. decided that they wanted to move to a middle-class suburb, a blue-collar middle-class suburb of Scataway, New Jersey, And for a better life for me and my brothers and sisters. And dad thought it was a great idea for me to get involved with sports. And so I tried out for the Little League baseball team. Mm -hmm. And at that time, in the 70s, at that time, it was very segregated. I was part of that first kind of group of students that was in desegregation, desegregating schools and that kind of thing. I tried out Mm -hmm. for the Little League baseball team. And in the town that I lived in at that time, it was an all-white program and very mm-hmm. few, you know, there was very few blacks that were living in the town who would go out for baseball, but we were the first group that showed up and none of us made the team. And And I didn't know how to play baseball very well, but it was very clear at that age that I was a superior athlete and better, probably better athlete than most everybody else. And when you're nine, 10, 11 years old, you don't have to be the greatest baseball player in the world. You, you're just pure athletic abilities is better to beat everyone out. Mm-hmm. And it was just... It devastated me as a young kid. I I just couldn't understand, and I didn't know anything about race or anything. But literally, I was unbelievable. I couldn't believe that I didn't make the, the team. And so my dad, and this is one of the things that's just great about my father, but he got together with some other men. Uh, a few other white guys in the community who saw what was going on. Their sons actually were playing in the little league. They pulled those kids out in our town. Fortunately, and this is to the credit of the town, we've always had a very strong recreation department league. Uh And so they just said, hey, listen, if the little league is going to be elite, if they're going to create these barriers, if they're going to be racist like that, we're going to have our kids play in the rec team. And so we had a rec league. My dad mm-hmm. was the coach. We had a couple of other guys that were coaches and they taught us how to play baseball. And we wound up being so good that we won our own league and we beat the little league teams. And uh, so the next season, they asked us, hey, we really want you to come and play for us. And my (laughs) dad said, no, you're not playing for them. And I didn't want to play for them at all anyway either. And so that was my first introduction to sports. That was my introduction to racism, to race, class, all these kinds of things, being a young kid, not even understanding what that was all about. I just knew that it didn't make sense, that I could see that I was clearly equally as good, if not better than everyone else, why wasn't I given the opportunity to play like everybody else? But fortunately, my dad said, we will show them instead of getting in arguments and telling them, we will allow talent to win out and we'll allow commitment and dedication and people working together to show what the power of sports can be.
0: Absolutely, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that. That speaks directly to what I think uh, this show is all about, and it sounds like your father was the the driving force and a major influence in that experience, and I'm sure in other experiences too. But what about coaches? Was there a particular coach growing up, not necessarily at the youth level, but maybe at the college level as well me, that would inspired you? Sure. Let me say this because
1: you make a very important point, but I think an equally important point that we need to understand in the world of sports. My mom played a very critical role in this as well. She was mm-hmm. not my coach but my mom and dad together collectively understood what was necessary and they that made lots of sacrifices they made a lot of sacrifices together because my job sure. was my coach and my brother's coaches and my sister's coach all the way through our youth sports but mom and dad together collectively said this was important And we to support these young people, these kids and our family to have this experience. So mom is very much of a backbone in my sports career, my brother's sports career and so many other people. So we want to be able to say, even if they're not on the front lines, they're really important in this whole endeavor, pursuing a a sports career.
0: Absolutely. And I imagine they were both um, involved in your decision to attend James Madison University. Is that correct?
1: Oh yeah. I was very fortunate. My parents never pushed me to play sports. They opened up the opportunities. Some, you know, do you want to be musicians? Do you, what do you want to do? Where is your passion? What will mm-hmm. you go after? And so my mom, I used to always tell my mom, I'm going to play in the NFL and I'm going to buy a house and I'm going to be in the hall of fame and everything. And my mother would always say, that's very nice. I just want you to be happy. She wanted me to be safe and she wanted me to be happy and whatever else. She said, I don't need a house. I don't need anything else. I just need you to be happy in Mm -hmm. what you're doing. So that gave me the ability to, in my time, I played baseball, basketball, football and ran track. Fortunately, I excelled in many of them on multiple different levels. No, they didn't push me in to pursue any one of those. And it just football wound up being the natural sport that I was the best in. Uh And they said, "Okay, great. I told them that I was going to get a scholarship to play football. They said, "Okay, fine, go do it. They encouraged me to be able to do it. I'm the first one in my family. No one knew about going to college. I didn't know how to get a scholarship. I didn't know about any of those things. But it was very supportive household that said, hey, listen, We're going to work together to make sure that whatever barriers are there, we're going to remove them together so that way you have those opportunities. So Those are the really big people in my life. But I will there have been a couple of coaches along the way. Actually, lots of coaches have really put a lot into my life. But there was a coach, um, Dan Maglione, I write about this in my book when I was in ninth grade. He pulled me to, to the side. Actually, he said it in front of everybody, which was, makes all the difference in the world. And I understand now, because of this, putting on my sociological hat, mm-hmm. understanding the importance of this. But, you know, as a young kid, I, I had... Great family, as I mentioned to you, really strong family support, grandmothers, fathers, aunts, uncles, everybody. Uh-huh. But he pulled me to the side, and he said one day, my nickname when I was growing up, and it still is at home if you go back home and you'll hear this in Piscataway, but people call me Packy, Packy Turner. And he said to me, he said, Packy, he said, if you keep on working as hard as you did today in practice, if you continue to do that for the next four years that you're in this program, it will be a joy to have said that I coached you and mm. that acknowledgement that right there was enough to motivate me i sought that out every day mm-hmm. i wanted i wanted to get that kind of recognition and praise adulation every day that is like a drug in and of itself so mm. lots of people say they play because they love the game but we got to realize especially for african american men Mm -hmm. young boys, and not just them, but to have the validation when you're trying to figure out your own identity, figure out who you are, when you're trying to figure out why am I here? Why do I matter? Why is life important to me? And to have someone, and in this instance, particularly a man, stand up to me and say, and let everybody know that you are valued. We appreciate you. You have the qualities to be successful. That was a big driver. And I think lots of times people ask, why do people play a sport? Why do they do that? The game is dangerous. Listen, the game provides you much more than just the opportunity to make a lot of money or to get a college education. It provides some people things that they can't find else in other ways in society.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, that's really fascinating. I appreciate you sharing that with me. I've certainly had coaches like that in my life, too. There's just great power in having a good coach like that, an inspiring coach who praises as well as tells you when you're doing things wrong. (laughs) A lot of coaches out there kind of just do the latter. And what was it like at, at James Madison University playing football? I know that the process of training for young athletes today, particularly in football, has changed. And that comparison over time is an important part of your book. But what was it like back then playing for James Madison University and balancing your education with your athletics?
1: Uh oh, wow. Again, you asked for great people that made an influence in your life. There's two. Coach Joe Carrico, who was the person that recruited me. I'll, I'll never forget the day he called me from Houston. And he it was a national coaches convention. And he said, hey, I know you have lots of offers. You got a lot of places that you can go. There's a lot of people around here buzzing about you as an athlete in high school. He goes, and trust me, they all want you he goes but the reason that we want you to come to jmu is because we need you and mm-hmm. again, that was again on one of those other experiences mm-hmm. i 18 years old and i'm thinking other people saying yeah we'd like to offer you a scholarship and this jmu coming on i don't even know anything about the school but mm-hmm. they're saying we need you trust me we are trying to build something we've only been in we've only had football here i think they sat at the time i had football for only about six seven eight years and they had only been in division one one year or actually they were division two and they were division three they spent one year at division two and they were when i was coming it was the first year that they were transitioning to division one double a and so they said we need really great athletes to be here and help build something i'm sold that that was it and apparently it worked because if people remember back in that era when i played Gary Clark was on the team. He played the Redskins, won two Super Bowls, three Super Bowls there. Charles Haley was in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. He was going on to win five Super Bowls. Scott Norwood, who was the kicker for the sure. Buffalo Bills. there We had about six guys from a small school that was just barely a blip. A matter of fact, I think we had metal stands when we were first started there. They Is that right? One half of the stadium with a very small metal stand. We just, we just really didn't even have a stadium there. We only actually hmm one side we have one half of the stadium all the all the students would sit up on the hill and watch the game from the hill and get drunk while we were out there trying to build something so that was the first thing that that made JMU special for me the second thing is as I'm a wild kid from northeast going down to Virginia and I'm feeling you know my oats and everything coach calls me into the office and says hey you know, what we have, we behave in this way and this, you know, here, and this is the way we do things Mm -hmm. and it's important that you understand what your role is and what's going on here. And so he helped me rein it in a little bit, but he also said to me something that was very important. He said, do you remember when, before we actually asked you to sign a contract for your scholarship, we had an interview. It was me, you, and your parents. We sat right here in this office, and I made a promise to your parents that you were going to graduate. You're going to get an education. And he goes, and you remember that? And he goes, and I'm not going to allow you to turn me into a liar to your parents. Mm. You are going to get your degree. Hmm. So that that kind of really just set the foundation for all of my experience. It was rough. I had a lot of different experiences. I was not prepared for the academic rigors of college in the way that I should have been. And that we can have a whole nother conversation about that. But really what it meant was, they were not going to allow me to come down there just to play sports in that situation, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm forever grateful for that because I've seen and interviewed many guys who have gone on to major college programs and will tell me, they have told me over time, I have a degree on the wall, but I don't even, I didn't earn it, I don't know what the degree was all about. They just, they shuffled me through classes and I passed them all on my, my way through. That was not my personal experience at JMU because I think a lot because of my family support, Mm -hmm. because of the coaches' commitment. Hell, our coach even, I saw him many times personally tutor the starting quarterback for our team. And I can't tell you when I've ever seen or heard of a coach taking his time after all of the meetings in the day and sitting down and making sure this individual is prepared to be able to pass his classes. So that was the kind of experience. I was very fortunate.
0: Thank you, Professor, yes. I think it's very instructive, just how many different adults in the room need to be on the same page as far as prioritizing education for it to work. And so I know the training process, as you write about in your book, has changed quite a bit now, and scouts have so much power, and even though their methods for evaluating and ranking talent might sometimes be inexact, and obviously money drives a lot of the training outside school settings, and those from affluent areas have much more access to the best coaches than do those from impoverished communities. And so you write about how social class is really a major factor in determining who gets to train and with whom they get to train. And particularly this notion of professional athletes uh, training with younger athletes and some athletes get that opportunity, some don't. And it seems to me that those are advantages that help young athletes make it to a higher level of what you call the sports tournament. And I think you're right with this commercialization of youth sports and television and academies like IMG. You know, the whole landscape is changing so rapidly, mm-hmm. but as I'm reading your book, it strikes me that poverty and, and also race seem to converge here. And they create this kind of powerful apparatus within the youth sports training system that, you know, holds poor black athletes back. And yet black athletes still end up making up a great majority of the NFL and also NBA ranks. So I'm, I'm just curious what you make of that observation. Is my logic correct? It seems like there's, there's so many more benefits and opportunities for those who come from affluent upbringings.
1: Again, if this is a multi-layered situation. What I argue in the book, one of the things that I do argue, and it is about race and it is about class, it's about gender too, because remember, it's not always, and I was challenged this when I wrote the book, mm-hmm. it's not always impoverished communities. There's not always poor black kids that are playing in the NFL or rural white kids playing in the NFL as well. The NFL also in sports, again, as we go back to this whole thing about validation, right? Mm -hmm. About showing people that they matter or that here is a place where you effectively can be accepted and you can show that you have value. Sports gives that opportunity. The NFL gives that opportunities in a lot of different ways or, or sports on all different levels. But what is important to understand is the vulnerabilities that athletes have, whether you are an Olympic athlete, a country club athlete, with comes from a lot of family wealth, or whether you're from an impoverished um, background or you're from a blue-collar working class like I was. Uh-huh. It provides you great opportunities, but there are many issues along the way or opportunities along the way for exploitation. Okay. We just saw, as a matter of fact, if you, you, with your viewers, they can look on Google right now, but there was you know that drill that was little kids barely these kids were probably 5 years old running the kind of the gauntlet drill where is a tackling drill where the yeah. one kid uh, has the football and the other kid has to uh, has going to tackle them they both take a running start towards one another and it just literally bowled over one of the little kids yes horrible and then what you hear in the background are some of the coaches the adults are laughing yeah. because the kid just got run over that is ridiculous they should never, they should never, that drill shouldn't be done until high school. And it shouldn't be done very often, but it shouldn't be done until high school. There's no way that you can put kids who can barely put a a uniform on to do that. Why was that done? That was done very simply because those former, those coaches are former athletes and they want to live vicariously Mm -hmm. through those kids right now. And so they put those kids health in jeopardy because of their nonsensical way of looking at sports. Those are the ways that we see vulnerabilities all the way through where people get exploited because of money. They get exploited because the coaches want their own fame. They get exploited a lot of different ways. And that's what's broken in our sports industrial complex in America. It's not about helping kids live their dreams. And that's what we are supposed to be doing, creating safe environments to allow people's talents to rise up to the level that it can take them and to make sure that they get to compete on a very holistic way. And we're Mm -hmm. not looking at that way in sports. And that is what I consider to be very dangerous in, in the world of sports, whether you're talking about a five-year-old or a
0: 35-year-old. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Professor. And I, I think that leads me to my next question about college athletics and particularly college football, but there's this difficulty that college athletes face in trying to balance education and athletics today because it's not that they're playing college sports, they're playing professional football on college campuses. And there are these learning specialists and tutors for college football players, but. As you write about in your book, there's a sort of shame and stigma that's associated with this sometimes. You tell this great story about um, your friend Odessa Turner and how he struggled to get good grades at his university, but the university actually betrayed him, took away his financial aid and left him homeless. And so the university's priority there, and I think some universities still today have this, is not clearly in the player's well-being. It's not in the interest of the player's well-being, I should say. And so it leads me to question whether it's football itself, in this, at least in this commercialized form, where wins and money are everything, as you suggest, isn't itself a barrier to young people getting a good education? What are your thoughts on that?
1: I want to make a very clear distinction. This is really important. It isn't football and it isn't sports. What it is, what you just dis- discussed and described is Division One football. Mm-hmm. where there's a great deal of money involved with this. Because sure. we have a model in, in Division Three, where people are, who are going to school and playing in Division Three sports, they're, they're figuring out how to balance education and internships and opportunities beyond sports while playing sports is the same thing at the mm-hmm. same time. It's only when we start to get to where there's large dollars in terms of ticket sales and television revenues and on, the, on merchandise sales, mm-hmm and all of these other things where there's what I would argue is that there's a competing interest where it's very difficult for universities to serve two masters in my mind, Mm -hmm. right? Even the ones that really want to do it, I I know of institutions right now, top-serving institutions where these are flagship as well as private institutions where there are compromised education yes. uh, opportunities for the athletes themselves. Some schools are doing it better than others. But the truth is that they, when your your master is to raise enough money to support all of the other, um, you know, mission of the athletic department, so other people can be able to play and all of those other things then you are forced to make some compromises, even Mm -hmm. if you put programs in place where you say, we're going to support the athletes when they get here in certain ways. There's a a great deal of pressure to make sure that they are taking classes that they can quote unquote handle.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Which sounds good in theory, but I have interviewed over 140 athletes in my book. They'll tell you many different times their education has been compromised. Yes. Right. Where they've said, hey, I'd like to take this major. or I'd like to study this. And the coach is saying you need to study or or you need to go to practice or the coach will say you need to balance X, Y, Z. But those who are better at balancing it get on the field and those who aren't. They get left by the wayside so how do you serve both of those masters some schools are doing it better but i would say to you the whole system is broken because there's a great deal of money involved and let's be also be very honest there are some people that are getting paid very handsomely throughout the whole enterprise of college sports on the backs of a very small um, minority of, of individuals and that's right in many instances it's on the backs of many black and brown folks that are playing basketball and football uh, in Division one
0: that's right, and it's my understanding, Professor, that on top of all of that, as you mentioned, these two particular sports, men's basketball and football, are effectively subsidizing the rest of the sports, which when you look at that through a racial lens, there's something very wrong with that, isn't there? When you know, the people playing those two sports happen to be African-American, and then the majority of the people playing the other sports are not.
1: It's a welfare system. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's incredible to me. I, I had a professor when I was at the University of North Carolina, and I shared this sentiment. And what was responded to back to me was, we redistribute wealth in many different ways in America. So this is no different. And I mm. said, well, <laughs> I don't really
0: like that response.
1: <laughs> I don't like it either. But I said, in particular, you are taking people who are coming from lots of different challenging backgrounds.
0: Absolutely. They
1: happen to be black and brown for the most part. And then they're generating lots of wealth. And then what you're also looking at is, in many instances, People who are playing polo and playing tennis and all those other things, they come from families that can afford to pay full freight in school. But you're taking the revenues from them and you're giving it to support those other programs. That, to me, reminds me very much of Dr. Hawkins' book about the slave plantation, the new plantation there. To me, that's one of those things, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, then it's pretty much a duck. So that's how I look at it there. But again, I wrote my book. It came out 2018. I did the research from 2006 up until about 2016. But let's look at a a, a real example that just took place right now. It's taking place right now where the governor of Georgia signed the the bill that said athletes can get paid in the state of Georgia for the name, image, and likeness. But the bill gives the universities the right to the option to take 75% of an athlete's earnings and redistribute it to other athletes. Now that's curious to me because again, (laughs) if you look at the universities in Georgia that will be generating those revenues, University of Georgia, Georgia Tech, some of the other schools, and you look at their rosters and you go down for the basketball and the football and more than the NCAA average of 57% and uh, 60%, you see almost 70% of the African Americans that make up on that team. So who's going to make that money on those two rosters? It's going to be black men who are making money on their own name, image, and likeness. And then you're talking about redistributing the wealth that they make so that other people on the tennis team, on the polo team, on the gymnastics team, on on all those other teams, so that way they can, not to keep the sport alive, because remember, this is beyond the amount of money that the revenue's generating for the team, but the individuals, and you're saying you're gonna take it out of their pockets and you're gonna give it to other athletes. That, to me, is very coded as discrimination okay. against them. I, I, I don't see how you can look at it any other way.
0: I don't either. And I'm curious, I'm glad you brought up the NILs, the names, images, and likenesses, because of course there's lots of legislation out there that's being proposed and put through in certain states. But to date, we're recording this in, in early May 2021. To date, we haven't, we haven't had any national legislation that's been passed. And I'm curious what you think should be done on that front.
1: I'll say this, I'm not a legislator, so I don't know. I'm not a policy maker. Mm-hmm. I'm a really good sociologist, where I can point out the problem. (laughs) That's not necessarily (laughs) something that I'm great at. But I will say this, Mm -hmm. I, I do believe that one of the things that's necessary, right? because I don't believe that the problem is about name, image, and likeness. There's a larger problem here. The biggest problem that we have here is that the athletes who play NCAA sports, they don't have representation. Mm -hmm. They don't have a collective voice into representing their own interests. That's right. That's the problem.
0: So prevent it from being, from forming a union.
1: Well, Any of those things, for instance, you're talking about, remember, we're recruiting kids, some kids are as early as 16, but we're recruiting kids that are 18 and they're playing from 18 to 22 years old, 23 or something like that. And you're saying to them, you have the ability to negotiate a contract with said company, or you can negotiate with the athletic program. That right there is a very much of an imbalance, Mm -hmm. and especially if we have people saying, oh, I'll be an organization that you can sign with and will represent. How do I know that what you've told me and what you put in a contract, how do I at 18 years old, how do I have the ability to truly understand what you're saying? How can Mm -hmm. I decipher this contract Or I go and I hire an individual lawyer? How do I know that this lawyer has my best interest? The first thing that I think of is we see about the exploitation that historically has taken place in another entertainment industry. And that's music. Mm -hmm. Right. So we're putting these people in the same exact vulnerable position again. Mm -hmm. Right. So why wouldn't we? And I've had the opportunity to speak to people on Capitol Hill about this. I say the thing that we need to do first and foremost is to protect the rights and the interests on these in these athletes throughout all of sports. In this instance, it happens to be with name, image, and likeness. But also make sure that they have representation about when they get injured. How, what are the responsibilities of the NCAA and the individual schools during the time that they play and after they play? Where is their voice in the, that to make sure that they're representative? for that, because as we know, when you look at the way that the rules are written, every school and every state has a different way that they will approach injury for athletes. There's not one uniform way. So some athletes have better protection than others. Some are very vulnerable in that. That's where the system is broken. If we're going to have a commercialized system, then we have to make sure that the individuals who are playing or are labor, whatever you may choose to call it, make sure that they're interests are protected and that there is a way that there's recourse if anything happens to them unfairly.
0: Absolutely. Especially in such a violent sport like football. I didn't play at the level you did, but I played it in high school. And there's there's no other sport that's as violent in, in major American sports. And I guess UFC is challenging that now, but trying to take up that mantle. But there, as you write about, in, in quite a lot of depth, there's really significant physical injuries, but also an emotional toll and a mental toll that can be had by a lot of professional and college athletes. And I wanted to switch the conversation a little bit to that and particularly how those injuries and and pain intersects with the notion of masculinity, because I think your analysis of the masculinity in football, uh, I found to be really particularly persuasive. And I wanted to ask you about your perceptions of masculinity in the National Football League and in the training that young men go through in order to make it to the league. It seems to me that your argument is not only that NFL players are commodities to be bought and sold, but that they're also bodies who are either willingly or unwillingly, depending on the circumstance of the player, craft their identity as men during and through this pursuit to make it to the highest level. Do I understand that properly?
1: Yeah, you certainly did. And I, I will ex- expand on that in, in a moment, but I want to also pivot back a little bit. Of course, yes let you know our audience understand that when it comes to the vulnerabilities of these injuries it's not just football it's not just that there's a violence in football right because you can get hurt and we've seen this happen where there have been really tragic injuries that will cause chronic conditions later Mm -hmm. in life in sports like football of course but basketball Women's basketball, gymnastics, soccer, and there are mental issues that come along with. You can have a a really nasty concussion in basketball, and that can be do more damage than in football because your head is hitting the hardwood floor. Or Mm -hmm. gymnastics. We we can also talk about again the mental and emotional toll that we're talking about in those scars. When you think about the situation with the young ladies that were gymnasts, right, in sports, or the young men who were wrestlers at Ohio State, there is there the vulnerability. Again, both emotionally as well as physically can leave a toll on you for years to come. And so we have to not just look at football, but recognize that we are putting some of these young people in harm's way in many different ways. And we have to think about what is our responsibility in the NCAA or, or in society that if we loved watching them entertain us, we love providing those opportunities for them to participate in sports. What happens when we leave their bodies broken in those other sports as well? What happens when we leave their minds in a state that we put so much pressure on them yes. that it's very difficult in their transition in life after the sport? That's one of the main things well that played. I really like. Yes. to get out of the book now going back to this masculinity piece it's very interesting the way that you know the way that you describe it is very true about going through this and being challenged to understand what it means to be a man in the context of playing sports But we also see this in many different ways. We see it finding its way in in women's sports as well. This whole thing about just do it, right? That's not gender-based. That is also, women are told, just sacrifice everything to just do it. Play Mm -hmm. like a man, don't throw like a girl. All of these, again, this is part of the sports industrial complex that we have. In order to perform at the highest level, put aside pain, put aside injury, put aside everything to go out and do what you're supposed to do. And for the most part, this is again, right, with a gladiator sport. You, you actually need to have that mentality because in order for me to make it to the highest level of football, I realized that my transition from college where I was you know one of the better athletes in college to go to the pros where I had to fight every day as a journeyman just to stay in the locker room, you develop the mentality that says, Essentially, no one has to tell you, but if it takes me running through this brick wall to ma- remain on this team, then I'm absolutely willing to run through that brick wall. And what I said to myself was, I know that I can do this because other people have done it. And I mm-hmm. know the reward is worth it because it keeps me in this locker room, which is what my goal is. So mm-hmm. we've got to have a healthy way of doing that. And A lot of people say it's crazy to run through a brick wall. For me and who I am and my personality, I didn't mind running through a brick wall. I -hmm. broke my neck in college. I was never supposed to play lots of prayer and support and great genes and everything and great doctors. I was able to play again for another five years beyond that. So a lot of people would say, if you broke your neck, why in the world would you continue to? Because it really fed into who I am as an individual. I've had guys say to me, listen, I love the physicality of that sport and imagine if you took that sport away from people especially at a young age impressionable age and they don't have the ability to be physical they may be taking their physicality on other areas now what we have to do is Mm -hmm. we have to teach people that there there are boundaries like you don't do that same physical thing outside of sports you do in sports and there's a healthy way to do this for you emotionally well beyond when you get out of the game and that's the challenges that we have with, I would say, in the NFL and NCAA, but we have those challenges more now. And, and, and again, as I talked to about the sports industrial complex, where we have little kids that are training to be on the Olympic gymnastics team starting at five six seven years old right this is really where it becomes normalized that no sacrifice is beyond the boundaries when you're telling people that if you want to make it to the highest level then the coach when they tell you to do this or when a trainer or when a doctor touches you in a certain way you never question it because you just think this just must be the way that it is they're here to help me get to my goals so when they do this examination in a certain way i may feel really uncomfortable But I don't ask anybody, I don't say anything, because we figured that this is how it's always been. This is normal. And this is just a small sacrifice on my way to an Olympic gold medal. Mm -hmm. That's really where the masculinity uh, piece of this is harmful. It's not just about masculinity. It's about thinking that this is okay and this is what is normal to be like in order to remain in the game and to play at the highest level
0: yes and it, it does seem like that normalization is key because it's a sort of a hyper masculinity in a way or a hegemonic masculinity. as you write about um in your book it's a particular form of masculinity which assumes men should be a certain way And you write how pain is quote proof positive of masculinity so long as you ignore that pain push through it inflict pain in return and it that quote <clears throat> which i think is very eloquently put you then also talk about how it's not just that physical pain, but there's athletes like uh, Philip Bobo, who you interviewed for your book, and he felt like he would be looked at as somehow less than, as a man, if if he asked for help to work through some serious physical and also emotional pain that he was going through. And uh, I really highly recommend these stories. You write You write some great stories about particular athletes who are successful, some more than others. And I really recommend to my listeners to buy the book and read about these players. But at the end of all this, you rightly ask this tough question. What happens when a player is suffering emotionally? These are hidden problems often. And so I wonder what you think can be done to improve the mental health of football players.
1: Again, I know that I write the book about football, but I, but my mission is really how do we improve the emotional health of all those who are vulnerable, and in this instance, all of those who are vulnerable in the world of sports. Okay, but I think one of the ways you do that is one, you eliminate those coaches that we talked about who were putting those young, very young athletes in, in harm's way. We, we just we've got to, as a society, as parents, as coaches, as former players, as viewers. We have to demand that nonsense stops. We just should never put people in harm's way like that. Yes. And, and I don't know how you weed them out, but maybe one of the things you do is I have a good friend that tells me that in Europe, in, in Germany in particular, you can't coach on any level until you go through, a, you get a certification process. You actually yes. have to go to a, ri- a very rigorous uh, process to be able to have the credentials to be a coach.
0: Why not? Why not? We certify yeah. teachers. Why shouldn't we certify coaches? They're in much closer proximity to the young people anyway.
1: Exactly. And they spend, like you say, they spend a lot more time. But yet, somehow or another, we believe that because you have played the game and gone through it, that makes you the most qualified person or that, or if not, and maybe that's not the way we say it, but that gives you the qualifications to be a coach. It could be one of the qualifications and it could be a very sure. important qualification, but it shouldn't be the loan qualification because where's the weeding out process? How do we make sure that individuals are, they have the character, they have the commitment that we, that are necessary to be with these young people. We've gone a little step further making sure that they don't have criminal backgrounds or don't have backgrounds with being, doing something. The children that you shouldn't do. But sure. when you're put in a position and you have so much influence on someone and and we just take it for granted that they somehow or another will magically say the right things and guide our children the right way, I think that, again, that's part of the recipe for disaster. That's where we're, we're having a problem. I think that yes. equally as important, in my mind, is we've set up a system in sports where we are largely told that the individuals who run sports are the experts in that. You need to turn your kids over to us. And when I mean kids all the way up into college as well, turn them over to us. You don't intervene. We know what we're doing. We'll take care of That becomes again, another problem. That's very problem. You think about it from this perspective. We say to these young people, that, okay, you're 18, you're now on college campus, your parents don't have a say in whatever happens to you, so we're trusting these adults who we put you in the care of, and then we say that those adults know best. But there is no, at least when I play sports, if you were, let's say you were literally being abused mentally, emotionally, or there was a very dangerous situation on the, the, the team that you're on, where is the mechanism in place to be able to go and say, this is happening and we don't think it's right. We don't think it's good. We always hear people say, you can go and you can talk to the athletic program. You can talk to those other things. How do we actually know that you can do that? And mm-hmm. if you do, how do we actually know that there are no repercussions? There's no recor- negative recourse on that where the, the coach catch wind of this and then said, you're never going to play for me again. Right. We find out about these situations that happen well after yes. it's been going on for years, it gets into the news, and then all of a sudden they get rid of the coach. There is no checks and balances in the system to make sure that there's places to intervene on this. In my mind, it's parents who send their kids and entrust the coaches and the athletic programs at university with their loved ones that there should be a parental council. Council. they are part of the stakeholders as well. Because mm-hmm. when I got hurt, I hurt my neck at 20 years old. First thing I needed to do was call my parents. Of I course. needed to hear from my parents to help me make a decision. And you cannot say in that situation, the kid's 20 years old, they get the right to make their own decision on that, right? When it comes to these kinds of things, it's bigger. We need advice. We need to help someone to help me understand what the doctor told me. Because I don't understand. I'm laying on a gurney in pain. I don't know what's going on. I needed my parents. We need to make sure that someone is there looking after these individuals every step of the way, whether you're five years old, as I said, and 35 years old. Now, the pro sports, they actually, have a collective bargaining agreement that does protect the individual that's a whole different level you can't really say that they're being exploited because they've made a decision collectively to ask for these goods in their contracts and they live with the outcomes of that good bad or otherwise but they do have representation we don't have that on any other level of the youth sports
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the difference between college and the NFL because I wanted to ask you about the NFL. We just had the NFL draft, of course, this big spectacle media event. And as usual, Roger Goodell was booed by the fans that were in attendance. And I think it was Cleveland where they had it. And, of course, Goodell represents the league's franchise owners. And he's called the commissioner, which is sort of misleading sometimes. People don't really realize that he actually works for the owners. But
1: He he has limited power. His job is
0: to keep the enterprise,
1: to keep, as they said, protect the shield and keep the golden goose alive. That's what he does.
0: That's right. And you write in your book at length about this conveyor belt, if you will, or maybe escalator is a better metaphor. But if you're an elite athlete, you're going from high school to college to the pros. But the NFL is benefiting significantly from the training system at the lower levels. But it doesn't appear that they're doing a whole lot in return. But you stop short, I think, in your book of recommending that the NFL deliberately set up its own developmental league like the NBA has or the minor leagues like Major League Baseball has. And you do mention it in the book, but I was wanting to hear more from you about whether you think that there's some sort of responsibility that the NFL has to to help fix this broken system. That's
1: th- this is a very a great question, but. The reason that I don't make that recommendation in the book is, for one, it's, not, it's never going to happen unless legislatively it's forced to happen. But if you okay. think about it, it's one of the greatest business models in capitalism that you can come up with. You basically have, as I call this, reserve army of labor at your ready that you don't have to at all pay for.
0: And they're well-trained. They're all exactly. well, sitting on their couches, well-trained. How could you
1: convince the NFL that they need to make a change? it's as a a very good um friend of mine who's on faculty at unc mentioned he said listen we are not in the business of being we should not be in the business of creating a feeder system for the nfl the nfl has their own business model we are not responsible for that model so yes the nfl business they benefit from this model but we need to take the responsibility to create a model that's best for students and best for the university and not best for the, 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 the NFL. And remember what people have to understand is that the NCAA is comprised, the members of the NCAA are the presidents of these individual universities. That's right. right? So that's who they're answering to. The presidents of the universities, of the major universities in NCAA have said, this is the enterprise. This is the model that we want you to create for us. Sure, it's great for us to be the feeder system of the NFL, but that's not really what we're concerned with. We're concerned with creating a model that generates a bunch of revenue, which then leaves the athletes vulnerable So one could say that, hey, listen, they're in cahoots with the NFL, which they very well may be. But the fact is they're not willing to change their feeder system because it benefits them financially. The NFL is not interested in creating a different type of feeder system because they don't have to.
0: They don't have to, of course, unless their feet are held to the fire, like you say, by Congress or somebody else, which seems, as you say, unlikely. But I think you make a really important point about the NCAA, which is they're not interested in changing this system either because the college presidents haven't demanded that they do. And the college presidents haven't done that because, of course, they're getting revenue not only from media rights deals for these games, but ticket sales and merchandise. And on top of all of that, donations from alumni who are football crazy or basketball crazy. So the system is working, it seems, very well for the NFL, very well for the NCAA and the universities and some coaches although a lot of coaches don't make much money, but certain coaches are making a lot of money. But the players, the, the ones who are putting their bodies on the line and risking you know, the, their long-term health, I think that it's very clear to me that they're the ones who are not benefiting as much as they should be. They're in some cases getting scholarships to, to get an education, but if they can't make good on that education because they don't have the time or the coach doesn't really care about their education or whatever it is, that's a really problematic system. So Reading your book, Professor, I came to the conclusion that, and maybe this is just my reading of it, and so please correct me if you think I'm wrong, but that this system is awfully dehumanizing for people involved in it, and yet you don't conclude in the book that we should do away with football or take football out of universities or anything drastic like that. So I I wonder if the first chapter of your book is called Broken Broken, and you talk about athletes who have played in the NFL, they made it to the highest level and they're still struggling. And so if at every level you've got athletes struggling and in pain, what do we do? How do we fix it?
1: I'm glad you asked that question. One, I just want to mention real quick, I got about five minutes before. Of course. This question was asked to me in, a, in a quite a bit different way and in a certain respect, but part of the question was at least someone asked me at a book you know, talk once, they said, hey, it seems like you're really negative on football do you want to do away with the game? And I said, mm-hmm. no, actually, no. I am I am very much in love with the game. I am really much, I love the game. But I feel as though the game is important to society on a lot of different levels. And when you love something and it's broken, then you have an obligation to fix it. And so what I want to see in order to fix it is I want us to, one, one my very good friend, Ron Rice, who played for the Detroit Lions for, seven, eight years, we do a lot of work together around mental health with athletes now. He said, the very first thing that needs to be done, and there's a difference between football as a sport and the institution that, and the institutions that run sports, or as we call it, as I'm saying, the sports industrial complex. He said, the first thing that we need to stop doing is we need to stop lying to athletes about what football is,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. especially on the college level. Football is a professional game. You can call it semi-professional, but there's, when a coach makes $8 million and you have a staff that collectively spends another $8 million on that, and you have a hundred guys on the football team, that's a business. Let's be quite honest. That is a business, right? And those are professional athletes on whatever level that you have that. So don't lie to them. People can accept the truth, but let's make the truth what it really is. That's number one. Number two, we have to be responsible and ask ourselves and take a long, deep look in the mirror and and say, What does football represent? What are our values in society? We have to do that with a lot of different things, but what are our values in the society? And are we okay with exploiting people? Are we okay with breaking their bodies? Are we okay with putting them at risk and making them vulnerable? And then say to ourselves, They got four years of. know scholarship behind that are we okay with saying okay like in the nfl yeah we put a billion dollars aside for um athletes who may have been concussed and are having you know mental health issues memory problems dementia those kinds of things and are we okay with denying claims at the rates that we are are we okay with saying that there's black white differences and so therefore we're going to hold black athletes to a different standard and not give them the benefits that we said that they're entitled to from that billion dollars is that what we really want in society but conversely it's the same exact thing when you look at corporations who downsize you look at people that say the bottom line is we got we need to make our quarterly expenses at the expense of the employees who commit their lives to this so this is part of a bigger problem that I'm really trying to get people to answer in the question to address in the the book is what kind of society do we want to live in? What what are we willing to accept? Are we the society that wants to exploit those who are most vulnerable in society? That's not the society that I wanna live in. That's not the kind of world that I wanna see sports about. And so I'm committed to recognizing, exposing where the problems are, and working together with people who have a responsibility to make a difference and holding those who are making those decisions holding their feet to the fire and saying, this is not what it means to be an American athlete, or this isn't what it means to be someone who works in America. We want to live in a society that values what people have to contribute. You want to be entertained and everything else, but we don't want to throw them away because this is not, we should not be living in a throwaway society.
0: Yes. Thank you so much, Professor. I I really appreciate you taking the time for me today and It means a lot to me. And I I think, as I mentioned before, your work needs to be disseminated very widely. And I recommend all my listeners to buy your book, Not For Long, The Life and Career of the NFL Athlete. Thank you.
1: And I just want to say, as I close, I would like to um, have people go to my lab website, which is rwturnerlab.com. Of course, um, and Because I'm doing a brain health study with athletes. I'm also doing a black male caregiver study for dementia. And yeah. if anyone out there is listening, please go to the website, take a look at it. You can get rwturnerlab.com. Or you can go to my own personal website, which is robertturnerphd.com, and you'll learn about these studies. That's my way of recognizing that there are some issues with the sport, and we want to get answers so that way we can make it better because we want to care about all the people who are involved in the game uh, on every level. So I want to take my training and my level of expertise, and my knowledge, and really find solutions for people, especially around brain health, cognition, and mental health. So
0: it's great work, Professor. Thank you so much. Absolutely. You have a nice day. You too. Bye bye.